I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Elisabeth Giroux-Prochel. Ellie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, you're a planetary scientist, right? Yes. What on Earth is that? Or well, what not, off of Earth? not on Earth. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, so planetary scientists study celestial bodies. So planetary bodies, planets, moons, asteroids, comets, um, any object that is in a stellar system. Typically, um, we study things that are in or close to the solar system. So a planetary scientist can be any kind of scientist, really. It's just a very broad umbrella term. Um, you can look at the atmosphere, the surface, the interior of um, a planetary body. You can look into its formation and its evolution. It can really be anything. It's someone who is looking at a problem that is centered on the celestial body, essentially. How do you look at the interior? How? I have no idea. <laughs> magic. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not, um, it's not magic. You can essentially gain understanding of the interior based on some earth measurements, mm -hmm. um, some idea of the mass and density of a planetary body. And based on that, you can have an idea of which uh, which rocks or um, which materials could um, be responsible for the size of an object. It's a lot of, um, if this is true, then this must be true. And I on think and on. so. <laughs> this is a little bit outside of my area of expertise. It's been many years since my planetary science courses. Mm -hmm. um, but it is true that we don't really dig into the ground to see what is underneath there. Um, if there's volcanism, we can have an idea of what kind of volatiles or what kind of chemicals can contribute to um, the kind of magma, the kind of lava that we get at the surface, um, that kind of thing. Um, otherwise, it's a lot of surface observations. And um, which planetary body do you specialize in? Do you look at little green men on Mars? Well, um, there are no little green men on Mars. I would just like to say that. Um, and I look at Mercury. So the planet that is the closest to the sun. And uh, why Mercury? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I think it's one of those things where um, I just got into it. It was a lot of serendipity and then a lot of getting hooked and just keeping going with the topic that I was studying. I, um, I did a project um, during my undergrad on Mercury. I was looking at explosive volcanism. And since then, I just haven't stopped. That was, that was the one for me. You mentioned your undergrad. Um, at what level of your career or studies are you at right now? 
So right now I'm doing my master's degree. Okay. You, uh, are you almost done your master's or just starting? Well, um, this is my fourth year, so uh, I am almost done. I'm currently in the process of putting everything together and uh, going through the discussion points and tying everything back together and writing my thesis. Okay, sounds like fun. It is. <laughs> and what's your thesis on? So I study a type of surface feature that is unique to Mercury called hollows. Um, so they are relatively small scale depressions. Um, we're talking about a few hundred meters um, in terms of width and a few tens of meters in terms of depth. So for Mercury, they're fairly small. Mm -hmm. um, we don't really know how these holes form on the surface. Um, they have to be they have to be forming via volatile loss, but we don't really know uh, the exact process of What's, volatile loss. What is volatile loss? So what are volatiles? So volatiles would be, um, for example, when you have um, a magma, you have volatiles in it, and those would be the gases that are dissolved in the magma. So you could have you could have many things. You can have water. You can have CO two. You can have uh, sulfur. Things like that. Excellent. So what you're saying is that as mercury ages and matures, it gets less volatile. <laughs> ah, I don't know if you can say that, but. <laughs> As it ages, it definitely cools down through volcanism, so it loses a little bit of heat. Um, and it has throughout its history. Um, we have evidence of very, very widespread volcanism. Um, something that's really cool about Mercury is um, the North Pole, essentially a big chunk of the Northern Hemisphere, uh, north of uh, 60 degrees north, is covered by what we call the Northern Smooth Plains, which are vast expanses of uh, effusive volcanism. So picture something that is just oozing out of maybe cracks in the ground, and it forms these really big pools, um, sort of like the, the Lunamari hmm. on the moon. That's really cool. It is really cool, and... Um, I don't know if I've seen anything like that um, on another planetary body. Um, I don't think we understand fully exactly how it formed, um, why um, the Northern Hemisphere specifically, um, but we also don't have that great resolution in Northern Hemisphere, in the Northern, sorry, in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> so we could still be surprised, although if there were um, very large lava pools down there, we would have seen them. Okay. Now I interrupted you earlier. Yes. Um, <laughs> you were talking about volatiles <laughs> yes. uh, and your thesis. Ooh. Please continue. Yeah, I got, I got sidetracked. So I think I was uh, talking about how hollows are likely the product of volatile loss, but we're unsure as to which mechanism exactly is responsible for it. So we're thinking of sublimation, essentially um, when a solid turns into a gas through a change in pressure and temperature conditions. Um, there could be a role of solar insulation 
So during the daytime, the surface of Mercury gets really, really hot. Um, and that could be a contributor to just gases escaping to the surface and kind of caving in and leaving a hole behind. Um, what else? Um, what else do we have? Um, it could be contact heating um, by um, adjacent volcanism, which could also provide uh, a source of volatiles as magma. Um, gets mm. closer to the surface. Um, so many, so many possibilities, and um, we don't really know yet. We don't even know how they form, how they grow, how they stop growing. We're not fully sure on what the limiting factors are to their growth. Um, anytime I present hollows, I call this the birth, life, and death problem. Um, these are all the questions that we're trying to answer and we don't even know which volatiles those would be. And that's a really, really big topic mm-hmm. that, um, we're very hopeful Bepi Colombo will help answer. That's really cool. And that second theory that you mentioned about how possible ongoing volcanic activity really, um, kind of blew my mind for a moment because I thought this process should be stopping, like you said, or, or they should be running out of volatiles. But if they're constantly being replenished from um, volcanic activity, then... It- also, we don't know. We know yeah. We know there has been recent volcanic activity because essentially it looks fresh. Um, but it's kind of difficult to time it. We can say within the last few hundred thousand years new hollows have formed and maybe within the last few million years there has been explosive volcanism on mercury um i think the effusive volcanism i talked about um in the northern hemisphere is a little bit better dated but um i don't remember uh exactly and uh, the timing of those events okay so Essentially, there is evidence on Mercury for recent volcanism. We don't really know um, if it's still ongoing. And for me, when it ties back to hollows, it would be very interesting, of course, to put a better time constraint on the formation of hollows. So maybe they're still forming. Maybe they've stopped forming 10,000 years ago. We don't know. Okay. Lots of great questions. So many. Um, in fact, uh, hollows, and I'm not just saying that because I work on them. They're one of the big mercury questions. Um, everybody, I think, who works or has worked on mercury is familiar to some extent with hollows because there's nothing like them. And we know and understand so little. Are they a specialized type of sinkhole? I have thought about this. I have, and I really don't know. Okay. I'm not a specialist in that type of landform. I have compared them to um, those sinkholes that form from uh, permafrost, mm-hmm. essentially melting or sublimating. Um, I've compared them to pit craters. So when you have um, a sudden collapse of a magma chamber, um, but in terms of the morphology, 
they look very different. Um, hollow morphology is very specific, and that's how we identify them usually on imagery. That and their spectral signature. So I haven't found, I haven't found other landforms that look like it. I've even um, compared them to um, there's a type of a sublimation feature that forms on Mars and I think it's through the loss of CO2 and they form these little very round pancakes mm. that kind of sometimes coalesce together. Hollows don't look like that. Um, I encourage anyone to look them up on their favorite search engine because <laughs> I think they're beautiful. Um, but to give you an image, sometimes when they form on mounds or relief, they'll look like molars. Like, oh, teeth. Yeah, like teeth. Oh, really cool. That's, I mean, to me, that's what they look like. Mm -hmm. Maybe you'll disagree. Um, but it's just, they don't look like many things I've seen before, provided I have a very short experience in the planetary science domain, but still. Was your undergrad in planetary sciences? Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> I think before I started doing planetary science, I took one planetary science course. I did. So my undergrad was in geology and it was very broad. We didn't get to specialize. So I studied everything that was related to the field of geology. And where did you study? Back home. Uh, so that would be in France. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. How do you find studying in France versus studying here in BC? It's been very different for sure. Um, I think to a certain extent it would have been similar if I had just switched universities back home. It ended up being a different method of teaching, but what is definitely different is the freedom that you have in crafting your own education, especially at the master level. So back home, I would have still done a research-focused master's degree, but I wouldn't have got to pick any oral classes that I wanted to take. Um, I still would have had um, a mandatory curriculum of sorts um, to get a geophysics master's, um, whereas here... I was able to have a little bit more freedom. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. <laughs> it's been a great time so far. Mm -hmm. um, during your studies, I mean, I know you're still processing your data mm -hmm. and um, figuring things out and writing your thesis, but have you made any even minor discoveries that you'd care to share? Um I don't know if those would count as discoveries, but I have found new hollow groups oh. um, that are not in the literature currently. So if you are interested as to what these are and where they are uh, when my paper comes out, you can check the uh, results maps. Um, I can't tell that there's anything special about these hollows uh, compared to the other ones, um, but they're new, so that's something. Did you get to name them? I wish. Um, oh. We don't name hollows, um, but one of my big dreams is to get to name a crater on Mercury. 
I uh, I have a name um, planned out. Um, if you don't know this, craters on Mercury are named after artists. Oh. Um, so lots of poets, um, musicians, um, playwrights, writers, um, all of that. Can you share who you're going to name it after? Chester Bennington from Lincoln <laughs> Park. I don't know if the IAU would accept it, but if I had a chance, I would give it a shot. You know what? If you find it, you should. Yeah, you shouldn't get a veto or get vetoed. <laughs> I will. I will do my best. I would. I think I would have to find a crater of particular interest to the Bepi Colombo mission that happens to still remain unnamed, and then maybe I would have a shot. I'm glad you brought that up. I was just going to ask, where do you get your data from? So the the data that I look at is from the Messenger mission. So that was between, if I remember correctly, 2011 to 2015. That's the mm-hmm. data acquisition period. Um, I think it was launched back in 2009, but don't quote me on this. Um that was only the second mission that we had on Mercury. The first one was Mariner 10, and that was in the 80s. That was quite a long mm. time ago, and it did not even image all of Mercury. Uh, but we did know about hollows, um, except they had a different name, um, and it was only in 2011, so through Messenger, that the first paper uh, coined the term hollows. Uh, So that was very exciting, but it's very recent. Yeah. So we've only sent two satellites to Mercury. Yes. Are we planning any more? Well, so Bepi Colombo is actually there right now. I think it has completed its third flyby of Mercury and we should start to get data um, in 2024 or 2025. So fairly soon. Wonderful. Yeah, it's very exciting. So BEPI is an ESA and JAXA joint mission. Um, ESA has all of the surface and interior instruments, so European Space Agency. And then uh, JAXA is the Japan Space Agency. Um, They will look more at the magnetic field. Um, So it's kind of a dual, dual mission there. It's very, very exciting. I'm so looking forward to having better resolution data. Uh, you can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I absolutely can imagine, <laughs> especially having seen some of the blurry images from uh, that, that mission in the 80s, Mariner. Yes. Oh, and a fun fact, okay, about Mariner 10. So when I did my undergrad and I first started to work on Mercury, there was an emeritus professor in the department who had done his PhD on the Mariner 10 mission. Hmm. And uh, when he found out I was doing a little project on Mercury, he brought out these massive maps of the surface for me to take a look at. And I, I mean, it was a wonderful time for me, but at the same time, I remember just thinking, how do you how do you identify anything? You have to have such a strong geological background and keen understanding of planetary science in general, I think, because 
the resolution was so poor. Mm-hmm. You know, these days I'm on my computer, I get to zoom in, to zoom out. Um, but I don't think he did that. He literally looked at these massive table-sized maps and that was his PhD thesis. It's like scientifically reading chicken entrails. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he made it all the way to Professor Emeritus, so mm-hmm. he was probably very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mercury has a bit of a bad rap. What? As being a fairly simple planet and not terribly exciting. Would Who you- said that? Who told you this? I I have a, a bone to pick with this person or, or maybe two or three. Would you care to make the case that Mercury is in fact among the more interesting planets? I, you know what? I wouldn't even say the more interesting planets. I, I want to just first say, I think every planetary body in the solar system and outside of it deserves its 15 minutes of fame. Um, And that's the thing about planetary science, a bit of a tangent here, but it's, there are so many possibilities. There's something for everyone and every planetary body is different and has something that is specific to it. It's literally a different world. Um, So what makes Mercury interesting, Outside of hollows, which are only found on Mercury. (laughs) So if you're interested in them, you have to look at Mercury. Um, It's a planet that has very much been active. You know, we've talked about um, the volcanism. So there's the explosive and effusive volcanism. So it's quite interesting. It's heavily cratered. So if you're into looking at impact craters, there's a lot of things for you there. It has um, its largest um, impact crater is 1,500 kilometers in diameter. Mm. It is massive. Do we have a crater of that size on Earth? No, we don't. Um, That I know of. Um, but one thing about Earth as well is that it has an ocean, so a lot of a lot of meteorites would fall in there. Right. Um, we have tectonic plates, um, so we do recycle um, our surface and uh, just overall erosion, um, forest cover, trees. Um, so that would hide. Um, some of maybe the largest craters that we have. Um, Of course, recently we haven't had any that size. I think we would be aware. (laughs) We wouldn't be here. Um, But no, um, those very large impact craters are specific to Mercury, actually. I think it might be a combination of where Mercury is in the solar system and um, maybe it's gravity as well. Um, But I'm not too sure about that either. Okay, you've made a a good case for Mercury holding its own. (laughs) It really, you know, it really does. Um, And I do want to add, too, that um, there's the added excitement of it being so close to the sun, which um, poses additional technical challenges when you are sending missions um, all the way over there. I'm going to take you back to Earth now. Uh, you mentioned that you did an undergrad degree in geology, and um, 
I know that all of our undergrad students do field work. Um, I doubt you do field work on Mercury. I wish, <laughs> if only I could, um, if someone wants to finance a mission to Mercury, I will, I will go. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of this interview series has been hearing field stories. Um, it sounds like a place where crazy things can happen that are very frustrating for you and very entertaining for me. <laughs> Would you care to share any field stories? Well, I'm really sorry, but unfortunately, I do not have any frustrating field stories. Those were some of my best times as an undergrad, but I do have a couple stories Um I think the first one is um, not so much an entertaining story, but I think an interesting one. Um, when we did our first year of field work, um, so my undergrad was very focused on field work. We had two or three field trips every year. And the first one we did, essentially, we started in the city Um and we went around and we looked at all of the rocks that were used to build houses, to build pavement. Um, and I remember it being really fun because we were just a bunch of geologists walking around. Um, we went in very touristy areas because one of our outcrops, if you can say so, was a cathedral. And then oh. another one was a basilica. Um, and it has now become one of my favorite spots whenever someone visits because one of the walls of this cathedral has an ammonite that is hidden in one of the gargoyles. And so every time I am there or I have someone who's visiting and I'm taking them around, I try to find it, um, cause it's a little bit hidden, but, um, I just really enjoyed feeling a connection um, with something I was passionate about um, as well as the place that I had grown up in because I would just walk around and not even pay attention to any of those rocks and any of those elements that made the city so unique. That sounds gorgeous and a very poetic approach to science. <laughs> I, you know, I really, really loved it. And if I ever were to plan a field work um, or a field trip of any sort, um, I think I would put that in the curriculum. There's a hotel at the foot of the Barard, or no, no the Granville Bridge. And um, it's made of Tindallstone from my home province of Manitoba. Oh. And um, it's very distinctive and it's full of fossils. And um, it's one of the first things I noticed when I walked down that street. Yeah, I have a I have a story like that. I um after I started my geology undergrad, of course, I went to my grandmother's house in the mountains and I'm about to step through the door like I've done a thousand times without even noticing what's around me. And then I stop and I'm like, Grandma, there's garnet in your wall. Sorry? <laughs> there's garnet oh, yeah. in your wall. And she's like, What's that? <laughs> And I just stood there for 10 minutes admiring the garnet um, in, the, in the granite. It was a very white, beautiful granite. Um, so my geology undergrad has brought me a few, a few things. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to go back to your research now for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, first, 
do you think you'll stick with Mercury? Or would you ever deviate to another planet? I'm going to have to eventually. Um, <laughs> it's... I'm sure I will still have hollow work, uh, pun fully intended, uh, for a few more years. Um, but I'll have to switch eventually. Um, there will be another fascinating problem that will catch my attention. And I, I'm open to any other planetary body. Excellent. An equal opportunity um, <laughs> planetary scientist. <laughs> Yeah. With this problem being literally a world away, why should we care about it? How does it in impact um, the average person's everyday life? That's such a difficult question. It doesn't. It, you know, it absolutely doesn't. Um, if hollows didn't exist, I don't think your life would be any different. Um in some ways, I think it can be thought of as knowledge for knowledge's sake. Um, and in other ways, um, understanding how things work on other planetary bodies can help us, you know, test our knowledge of how things work on Earth. Because if we have developed a hypothesis, let's say, um, you know, uh, feature A forms via process B on Earth, and then process B doesn't work to form a feature of type A on another planet, and then you have to adjust your process B. So maybe it's not directly useful, and maybe you will never know, and I will never know, but um, I think in some ways it definitely does contribute to the advance of science, and that's always beneficial in some way, um, whether we notice it or not. One of the problems with scientific research is, like you said, we never know um, how that science will be used in the future. And mm -hmm. it could have a benefit that the researcher never lives to see. And, you know, if I don't, I will be okay with it. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps the bigger benefit that comes from planetary science is the technology that we have to develop to create these very, very resistant probes and satellites because we send them hundreds of thousands of kilometers away. We send them so far out and they have to be able to resist to very high temperatures, um, maybe high pressure conditions as well. For example, um, on Venus or in other planetary bodies with very thick atmospheres. Um, and that technology definitely will have an application um, in everyday life. Already there's so many things that we use um, that are the result of um, building satellites, you know, cameras, mm -hmm. memory foam, um, those, um, the jaws of life, I think is what it's called. So those tools that you use to extract people yeah. from, uh, from car crashes, um, that is modeled after a tool that is used, I think, to separate, um, maybe a satellite from its rockets. I am unsure, wow. but space science themed. Another 
possible application um, as permafrost around the world melts, as you mentioned earlier. Um, roads that are built on permafrost, rail lines are getting what could be hollows on Earth or a hollow analog. Um, many communities are being cut off from their supply lines. And so if your research can help us understand uh, Earth-made sinkholes, um, that could be a huge benefit to um, It people. could be. However, <laughs> <laughs> if, if they're caused However, by a similar phenomena, I, I don't think they are the same. I would, I would love for them to be the same thing because then I could justify going to the Arctic or, uh, you know, far enough north, uh, for field work. Um, but unfortunately I think they are very dissimilar, um, in many ways. Um, well, you're keeping us from going down a, a broken path <laughs> someone has to figure it out someone someone will i'm sure mm -hmm. you are clearly very passionate about your work um what is the best part of your job so many um i was thinking about this but um for me i find a lot of joy in simply even looking at the imagery that is available at this point and um, just observing hollows, figuring out or trying to figure out, I guess, why they're shaped, how they're shaped, why they occur, where they occur, just thinking about it. Um, but I think perhaps the most fulfilling thing is going to conferences and getting to talk about science and talk about hollows with other people who have an interest in this topic because the Mercury community is quite small and the hollow community, because it's a small subject, is even smaller. So, How many people, roughly? I, you know what, I have no idea. Okay. But I have read every single paper that was written on hollows. <laughs> it's a doable thing. It's not, it's not a flex on my part. Um, I, I have no idea how many there are, but it's a totally achievable thing in four years of a master's degree. I think plenty of people read even more papers than I have. Um, so it's, um, it's a young topic and it's a small community. So it's always um, a great experience to be able to bounce ideas off of people who have um, a deep understanding of that topic as well. That's great. It sounds like a very cozy community. <laughs> well, I so far it has been my experience. Um, you know, I've um, I've had lots of very eye-opening discussions um, every conference I've had the chance to go to. And so I'm very thankful that I've had those opportunities. Good. What was your favorite con uh, conference? Oh, I, you know what? That's, that's a tough pick. Um, I think it was LPSC. Um, LPSC? So the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference that is um, close to Houston uh, every year. And I got to go earlier this year and I had um, a poster. And I think the, the poster session was a couple of hours and I did not, 
I did not see time pass by. I just, I got to meet um, a few of the people who uh, wrote the papers that I based my entire work on and I fangirled a little bit. Unfortunately, I think we all do. <laughs> I, I tried to keep my composure, um, but it was such a fantastic time. I'm glad for that. <laughs> Now, of course, nothing is all sunshine and roses, mm -hmm. um, especially on Mercury. You've got your day side <laughs> and your night side. Um, what is the worst uh, part of your work? The worst part of my work? Or the most challenging part? I think it's, it's the lulls. Um, a lot of my work is um, data acquisition and essentially gathering information on those hollows and where they occur. And while I absolutely love looking at the imagery, I think they're beautiful. Um, I think part of it must be some sort of uh, Stockholm syndrome uh, equivalent <laughs> because I have looked at so many, I think, tens of thousands of individual images and just being very rigorous about the information that you gather on what you see on the image can be very tedious. And when you have many, many data points, it can be very discouraging sometimes because, you know, you want to you wanna have enough data that you can make the plot. But the process through which you acquire the data to make the lovely plot that will summarize everything is very long and sometimes you get the data and the plot that you chose to make was not it was not the right one. The question you were asking was not the right one. And so you have to think of another question mm. with that data set. Um, so sometimes it feels like you have to start from zero because it's uh, science and research specifically is a very creative domain, but you don't always have a good idea from the start you need to ask maybe some not so good questions first to get a feel of what is happening in science you have to be uh, comfortable with failure and especially in planetary science where you could be counting on a new probe that after decades of work just explodes <laughs> fortunately that will not happen with yes. Beppy. um i'm uh knocking on wood <laughs> <laughs> um yes thank you <laughs> me too <laughs> um but yeah you have to be I think you have to be resilient and you have to learn that sometimes finding that something is not working can be an answer um and it can be good enough which is not something I learned in school um, and I really appreciate that about research, no matter how frustrating it be, it can be sometimes because you want to have, you know, that clear answer. Sometimes I'm like, well, I did all this analysis and all I found out was that it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. That's still a result. Mm -hmm. You can still do something with it. I want to go back to that small community that you were talking about, mm -hmm. um, the cozy, um, community. Do you find um, in general that the community is open and welcoming or is it uh, sometimes a little too small and cliquey? 
I don't think I have enough experience to weigh in on this. I'm very much new to the planetary science community. Uh, So far for me, it's been great. Um, And like I said, I got to have really good discussions with um, a few colleagues and um, everybody's very keen on um, working together on projects. I think especially when it comes to hollows, uh, you want to have uh, different people with different kinds of experiences, um, but also the same interest. And so that's uh, ends up being a small number of individuals that can collaborate. Um, so, so far for me, it has been, uh, has been welcoming. Um, but you know, I'm sure someone else would probably have horror stories. Um, so I don't know if I've been lucky, if it's the Mercury community, only time will tell, I guess. (laughs) Well, I mean, small and, and insular can be a good thing too, because then it means, um, once you're in, they look after, they look after you and you're one of the team. Um, as long as they're open and welcoming to begin with. Well, I hope that's what ends up happening for me because Mm -hmm. by the end of my master's, I will be very specialized in hollows. (laughs) Um, and I might want to keep working in that. So hopefully, um, they'll still want to work with me. Yeah. (laughs) One thing that can, um, sometimes be a a barrier is if a person is part of an underrepresented community, uh, I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? Uh, and if so, has that impacted your studies? I I do. In fact, I do. Um, well, one, I am a woman. Um, I, for me, um, I don't think it has been, or I don't think it has had that much of an impact directly. Um but that's also because the second community I belong to is people with invisible disabilities. Um, I found out um, right after high school that I had ADHD and a lot of people have it and a lot of people still make it in research, but I did not know mine was that strong and it does make things noticeably more difficult, I think, um, on the day-to-day, including in my work. I can imagine that, especially when you're pouring through all that data. Sometimes it's helpful um, Mm. because I'm able to focus uh, very intensely on something for um, very long um, amounts of time. And sometimes it's very unhelpful because I'm going in every direction. (laughs) (laughs) And it's good to have that balance, I find. Um, certainly with my own work, there are certain days where I need to be focused and certain days where I need to be doing or juggling many balls at once. Um, yeah. I would say it has been helpful in the sense that um, I'm able to be a little bit more creative about how I approach certain problems or the types of questions that I ask. Um, I think that's a recurring uh, theme with people who have ADHD. It's on the one hand, uh, maybe a little bit more of a scatterbrain at some times, but um, usually some form of creativity. Wonderful. 
And it sounds like you're being quite creative with your work. I hope so. <laughs> we'll find out once your thesis is done. In a good way, though. In, <laughs> yes, a, in yeah. a good way. <laughs> now, one question I wanted to ask quite a lot during this interview. Um, one thing we've all had to deal with has been COVID. Oof. So <laughs> how has the pandemic impacted your studies? Well, um, I was very lucky to start my master's degree um, right when COVID hit. So I think it was just about three months in, everything shut down and I just moved to Canada. Uh, <laughs> everything was so new. I was getting used to a different country, a different system of education, um, pretty much everything. And it did make things um, a little bit difficult. I was still very much able to work um, from home, fortunately, because of the nature of what I do. I don't have any lab work. I don't have any field work. A lot of it is just um, looking at data sets on my computer. Um, so that didn't suffer. But um, it was a little bit strange for a while. Uh, being there and doing my master's, but not really being at UBC. Mm -hmm. In fact, you were saying earlier, this is like your first year out of your master's uh, being at UBC, right? This is, well, I can't remember when we made it back in person, mm -hmm. but that was, that was it for me. Yeah. Well, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> After long last. <laughs> If anyone is listening to you and um, is getting really passionate about hollows and mercury or even just planetary science, what background or course or experience would you recommend they uh, take up to follow in your footsteps? I mean, I don't know if anyone would want to follow in my footsteps, uh, <laughs> but um, if you do want to become a planetary scientist, I would say... Anyone can be a planetary scientist. Um, so if you are into atmospheric science, go do that and then find a planetary atmosphere to study. Um, if you are more of a surface feature person, if you want to be a volcanologist, you can, you can learn about volcanism on Earth and then decide to study volcanism on the moon. Um, you can do, you can even do physics, you can do math, um, and apply it to planetary problems. So pick what you're interested in and then find someone who works in planetary science in that domain of interest of yours and go for it. Sounds like you could benefit from an atmospheric science, a scientist with your, um, escaping vapors. <laughs> well, or not I could, <laughs> but also no, because uh, Mercury has a very, very tenuous atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, so we know about some of the gases that have escaped from the surface, um, but it's not enough to have a very big influence. Fair, fair. <laughs> <laughs> You've been very inspiring today. Well, thank um, you. Doing a master's, especially during a pandemic, but even at the best of times, uh, can be quite trying. And it takes a village to write a thesis mm -hmm. <laughs> in many it ways. It does. It really does. I'm curious, who's um, been inspiring to you through this process? 
through through the process of my master's, I would absolutely say my supervisors, um, Catherine Johnson and Mark Jelinek, um, I have learned a lot from working with the both of them, um, both as a scientist and as a human being. Um, in fact, they're both very keen on reminding you that you have to be a human being first to be a good scientist, which I think um, is a great teaching. Um, and I'm very, yeah, I feel very inspired um, by my mentors. Um, I think before before I came here um, studying in France, I didn't get the opportunity to look up to a lot of people, not because I didn't want to, but because I think I could not necessarily relate um, to anyone who was working um, in the field of planetary science that I that I knew of um, until until I did that project on Mercury, and then the professor that I worked with, uh, she was um, both this fantastic scientist and human being as well. Who is she? Uh, so she, uh, her name is Chloe Mich. Yes, her name is Chloé Michaud, um, and she works at the uh, ENS de Lyon. Um, yeah, so she's a professor uh, professor there. What you're saying about uh, having trouble relating to some of these uh, senior profs when you're doing your undergrad, I can totally relate to. It's not until you're doing your, um, not that I've done a master's, but uh, it's not until you're in a more intimate setting with them um, that you start to see them as more relatable and as actual people, not just people at the front of the classroom. I think so for me as well. It was that there weren't many people who were interested in what I was interested in mm -hmm. and none of them that I felt I could relate to, you know, a lot of um, older men in, uh, in geology. Uh, I find this department to be a little bit more diverse, but where I come from, it was really not the case. And um, I think that contributed a lot to me not really having um, someone that I admired, you know. Mm -hmm. But even if you don't, I think it makes it easier when you know there is someone like you who is doing what you want to do. I think it's definitely important um and very helpful um but even without that you can still make it if you know if you know what you want essentially the power of seeing yourself reflected back um in people of authority uh is very much underestimated yes um i think it does does make it easier because um it gives you confidence that someone like you has gone through what you are going through or what you are hoping to go through. Um, yeah, and it, it gives it gives hope and motivation and you can ask them for advice. Um, I, I wish I had more role models during my undergrad, but at the same time, I didn't. <laughs> Um, but I do know. So um, things get better. Good. Speaking of um, things getting better, hopefully, <laughs> yes. um, I'm curious, where do you see the future of planetary science going? I know that um, very often uh, 
fields, entire fields of research are changing at the speed of light. And the way that you do research today uh, can be completely different at the end of your career. Uh, so what trends do you see coming down the pike? I think um, this is something that is happening um, across all fields. Automation. Just, you know, machine learning was a big mm -hmm. thing. AI is probably going to be. It is in many fields and it's probably going to be in planetary science just because of the nature of what we do, right? We acquire data and we want to analyze it. We want to be able to recognize certain patterns, certain features. And so I think that's going to have more and more importance um, as time goes by. Um, I think um, knowing which tools... Um, are forthcoming and which tools are currently being used and learning how to use them is always a great skill to have. You can always learn as you go, but um, if you come prepared, it makes things a little bit easier. Um, but I wouldn't lose focus of um, the basics just yet. So you're talking about... Um you work in space science and you're talking about AI, which makes me think of that blinking red light saying, I'm sorry, Roy, I can't do that. <laughs> and having the right tools and you're sounding more and more like Sigourney, <laughs> which I say is excellent. <laughs> um, for my final question, mm -hmm. you are at the beginning of your career. Hopefully. Um, and you mentioned one aspirational goal, getting to go to Mercury. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm curious, what would you like to have as your uh, professional legacy when you eventually retire? Well, I hope to have a long career um, in a field that um, is fulfilling and to which I can contribute in any small manner. But I think for me, what matters is representation and visibility. I think it's difficult for people with any any disability and invisible oh, invisible disabilities um, mm -hmm. to find ways to navigate the world uh, and to navigate research that work for them. Um, and so, if I could get in the future the opportunity to mentor or help other people with, um, it doesn't even have to be ADHD, but to to help them or to show them that it is hard work, but it is possible to make it, um, I think I would like that to be my legacy. I think that's a wonderful legacy. Um, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Ellie, those are all the questions I have for today. Is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? Um, I would really like to know where you heard that uh, Mercury <laughs> <laughs> was a dead planet. I, I would like to know who told you that. Not a dead planet, <laughs> just uh, not one of the most exciting planets. And I thought it was you uh, who said, you know, everyone always raves about Mars. Ooh, mm. Mars. Ooh, look at me. Um, <laughs> and then they're like, oh, Mercury, whatever. <laughs> well, that's not how I said it. <laughs> um, but it is true that 
Mars does get a lot more, gets a lot more missions. It gets a lot more instruments and planets like Mars or even Venus, which is absolutely fascinating. There's so much going on on Venus. I think they get a little bit forgotten. Um, but they're not dead. <laughs> and uh, they're definitely not any less interesting than Mars or the moon um, or um, any other planetary body in the solar system. Or Mercury. Exactly. Yes. Especially Mercury. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you for sharing everything. Um, you made Mercury seem much more interesting. I hope so. Uh, I hope a lot more people are going to, uh, you know, get into the field and um, find new things, maybe help uncover all of the hollow secrets. Um, I think I would love to see that. Find more mysteries too. Find more, more mysteries. Um, there's always, I think there's always something new. Something new to find, something we didn't see, something we didn't take a second look at. There's definitely some discoveries to be done. And Baby Colombo is coming soon, so we'll be able to maybe spot some of those. And maybe one day in the distant future, you'll be pulling out your Mercury maps to uh, some young <laughs> undergrad. <laughs> I would absolutely love to pull that move. Um, yeah. I think it would make me very happy. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing and have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robinson, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth.